We are starting a Christmas series in the book of Philippians. I'm calling it Joy to the World. Uh, and obviously, I think you get the reason why I'm calling it that. Uh, this series, we're actually going to wrap it around from Christmas into the new year. I'm excited about that. Um, I think that God has a lot to say to us in this book of the Bible. You know, I was thinking about you guys in preparation of this series, and I thought as your pastor, if I could give you one gift, if there's one thing that if I had unlimited resources, unlimited capacity, I could just, you know, give each and every one of you this gift and that it would stay with you for the rest of your life, the gift that I would give you would be a positive happy faith. Francis Assisi said, let us leave sadness to the devil and his angels. As for us, what can we be but rejoicing and glad? Now, when it comes to the scriptural message on this, King Solomon said something in the book of Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. He said, as a person thinks in his heart, so he is. And this is actually, if you look in your translation, it might not show up that way in your translation, but that's a literal rendering of the Hebrew. In other words, what the wisest man in the world at this time is saying, that you are what you think. You are what you think. It turns out what we think and believe about God about ourselves, about others, about problems, about this world that we're living in will determine the quality of life that you experience with respect to your happiness, your relationships, your creativity, your productivity, even your physical health. Now, here's why I think this message is needed today. I look out as a pastor and I look at and I listen to people talk and processing their lives and their worlds, and I don't hear a lot of positivity and optimism nowadays. You know, people are down. Uh, they're in a gloom of despair, and I can get it. I mean, as you listen to the 24-7, 365 news cycle, it, we are becoming an increasingly negative culture. Recession's looming. Your dollar doesn't spend as far. Geopolitical crisis is taking place in Israel and Ukraine, and on and on and on it goes. It turns out that we are what we think, and if our minds are constantly fixating on this stream of negativity, our mood is inevitably going to follow, and it's going to take everything else with it. Your words, your actions, your health your relationships. You know, science actually validates what Scripture talks about with respect to this. Author David Murray explains that science confirms and illustrates the Bible's teaching on the link between negativity and intellectual sluggishness, emotional fragility, economic decline, social decay, and spiritual backsliding. But here's what science can't do, he says. It can't prescribe lasting solutions. Only the Bible can do that. And that's why we're turning to this book in Philippians. This book is such a gift to the church. Uh, it has been called the happiest of all letters. 
And it's amazing that it is such a happy lever given the circumstances that Paul's in. And we'll talk about that more as we make our way through the letter. But here's what Paul's doing in Philippians. He's contextualizing for us a prayer that Jesus prayed just before he approached the cross. In John 17, 13, Jesus prayed for his followers and he says, I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with joy. Did you know that that was a primary reason that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and came into the world? Like I said, if I could give you a gift this Christmas season, it would be for you to appropriate what Jesus intended with his coming into this world. So let's pick it up and let's see what Paul has to say. We're looking at the first 11 verses. It says this, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Now, let's understand the context of this letter. Paul, most scholars believe, is writing this letter while he is under house arrest in Rome. It's around the mid-60s A.D., this church that he's writing to Philippi has learned about his predicament, and they're deeply concerned for him, so much so that they send one of their own, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus makes the journey from northern Greece down to Rome, where Paul is right now, and he brings with him a financial contribution to help Paul in prison. Here's why. When you find yourself in a Roman prison, you are responsible for your provisions, and here's the catch, you're not allowed to work to earn them. You can kind of see in a dynamic like this why you would find yourself in a rock in a hard place if people on the outside don't care about you. Prisoners starved. And here's what's worse. This type of prison system dynamic still exists today. 
I've been to prison systems where unless a person had someone on the outside that brought them food or medicine or whatever else they needed, they were going to suffer in prison. So Paul is in this situation, and put yourself in his shoes for a minute. How are you going to be thinking about your life? He had it on his heart to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the known world. He cared that the Gentiles heard this message of salvation. But he's in a prison. He doesn't know how long he's going to remain in this prison. And he's not even certain if they're going to execute him or not. Where's your head at right now? How are you thinking about your present circumstances? How are you feeling towards the future? Well, Paul shares with us where his head is at in verse 4. He says, whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. And I just have to say this. There are two words that seem like oxymorons to me, okay? One of the words is prison, and the other word is joy. I mean, does serious threat and uncontained happiness seem like things that should coexist together in your mind? You know, Paul, astonishingly, as he talks about this concept of joy, this is the first time of 15 times throughout this letter that he's going to repeat, I experience joy, you need to experience joy. In fact, if you look at chapter 4, verse 4, he actually commands the Philippians that it's your spiritual responsibility to experience joy. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Have you ever found yourself repeating the same thing over and over and over again? <laughs> if you're a parent you get what I'm talking about right now. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that I've shouted across the room, shut the door. I've said it a hundred times. I hope the message is going to stick the hundred and first time. And of course, you know, those are kind of habitual things, behaviors that we're trying to instill, but there's more important messages that you repeat. I like to say to my kids, you need to care for your brother and sister. You need to treat them right every day. Don't fall into the habit of calling them names. Don't be destructive in your relationship with them. Why, Dad? Because they're going to be your brother and sister for your whole life. So we're repeating the message, praying that the message sticks. And Paul, he's repeating the message that your joy is not about your circumstances. Your joy is about your perspective. No one can rob your joy from you. They can change your circumstances. It's all about how you think. You are what you think. Now, here's something I just want to make clear as we're walking through this letter together. I'm going to be using words, you're going to hear me using these words like joy, happiness, gladness, satisfied, content, interchangeably. As I look at this, this grouping of words, I see them as synonyms of one another. I believe that when Paul's talking about 
joy in the context of scriptures, that he's talking about an emotion that you're to experience as much as an attitude that you're supposed to adopt. Now, there are some people that would suggest, as you look at the scriptures, that these two things are fundamentally different, joy and happiness. They would say that Christians have joy while the world has happiness. I don't see that. I've looked at these terms in the scriptures. I've studied them. I don't see neat categories like that in the Bible. Now, you can disagree with me entirely, but I would encourage you, if you do, pick up Randy Alcorn's book, Happiness. He spends a lot of time going through these biblical concepts and biblical categories. You see, I believe that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of the lights, including emotional gifts. I believe that God truly does want to give people the gift of happiness. I don't want to surrender that category over to the world or to Satan. I believe that it's so important that believers live in the vitality of good emotional health. So here we go. Charles Spurgeon once said this, God made human beings as he made his other creatures to be happy. They are in their right element when they are happy. So as we consider this category, though, we have to ask the question, well, how does God deliver happiness to us? It turns out that you can experience happiness in your world without God, but you will not experience complete happiness. I believe that Paul's showing us in Philippians that your happiness can only be made complete in Christ. In other words, if you try to obtain happiness apart from Christ, you'll experience some levels of it, but there will be a big gaping hole in the middle. And Paul centers it all on Christ. You see it all over the place in his letter. If you look at the first part in verse 1, he's, he's building the identity into the Philippians, and he's describing them as those who belong to Christ Jesus. You might see it in another translation as in Christ. For Paul, as he wrote, Jesus is everything. He completes everything. That title, Christ Jesus, appears 37 times in this short letter to the Philippians. If you look at his greater work in the New Testament letters, he says that title 400 times. In Philippians 3.8, Paul says, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite knowledge or value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I like to say it like this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So again, can someone feel happy apart from Christ? Well, yeah, like an atheist can be walking through the, Lord, the woods, they can see a sunset, they can feel awe, but it doesn't change the fact that the emotion that they're experiencing still came to them from God. He's the one who invented it. They call that common grace in theology, meaning God gives good things to people um, even if they don't believe in him, because that's just his general bent. That's his disposition. He likes to do good and kind things for people. I was reading Acts 14 this morning, and 
Paul was preaching to the people in Lystra, and he argues from common grace to them. He says, God never left you without evidence of himself. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food. And look at that final part, joyful hearts. It's a part of the good gifts that God gives. It doesn't mean if you don't believe in him that he's still not the source of it. Now, David Murray suggests that there are six kinds of happiness that you can experience in common grace. One is nature happiness. And then you have social happiness, vocational happiness, physical happiness, intellectual happiness, and humor happiness. All of that can be experienced apart from God. But there is one form of happiness that you need Christ especially for, and this is what he would call spiritual happiness. This is a joy that at times contains more pleasure and delight than all the other six put together. This is how happiness is made complete. We read that in Psalm 32, for example. He said, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. What we've come to realize, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is that you have now found the one who created happiness, and you have been brought back into right relationship with him. There is a void that exists apart from him that has now been filled by faith as you've come to know him as Lord and Savior. And Paul is saying, listen, you might experience some levels of happiness apart from God, but you are not going to experience the real thing without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now remember, You are what you think. You are what you think. In the case of Paul, you can put a man in prison, but you can't lock down his mind in Rome. He has a better perspective. And I think we need to remember that as believers. Perhaps you haven't been feeling happy. Perhaps you've been struggling emotionally. And Paul, in this book, is giving us prescriptions for our mental health. How do you kind of maintain your happiness in the Lord? Again, I'm telling you, science validates this stuff. You know, there has been research that has been done in happiness, in the levels of happiness that we experience. When we tend to think about happiness, we tend to think like, if I got more money, a promotion at work, a better car to drive in, If my circumstances got dramatically better, well, then I would be much happier in life. But it turns out that research says that only contributes to about 10% of your happiness levels. And that's like a really small amount when you think about how much energy we put into those things. 50% of it is genetic. You're wired that way. Some people, like Penny are just glass half full people, right? But guess what? 40% is within your control. 
It has to do with your choices, your behavior, your thoughts. And you know this in your experience. You've interfaced with people who seem like they have it all together, and yet they're not as happy as other people who don't seem like they have it all together. What's the difference? It's perspective. You see, Paul, he shows us in how he talks in this letter three things that are reinforcing his joy or happiness while in prison. The first is his resting in God's sovereign purposes. Uh, Verse 6 is a very well-known verse for believers. I am convinced, I am certain, that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, why did Paul need to cling to that thought with respect to this church in Philippi? Just go back sometime today or tomorrow and read Acts 16 and read about what happened in Philippi. Paul's in his second missionary journey. He's there for a short amount of time. He's thrown into prison, and then he's ejected from the place. You think he had to trust God with the work there? But what did God do in that short amount of time? Well, this well-to-do woman named Lydia, she comes to faith. She's a merchant of fine linens. Her household becomes kind of like the embassy of sorts for the Christian outpost there in Philippi. And then when he's arrested, you know, God delivers a minor miracle, and the jailer who's watching Paul comes to Christ. Paul's like, okay, I'm seeing the power of God at work and the goodness of God at work, and I'm convinced that the God who started those things is going to keep doing those things. In other words, Paul could be away from Philippi, but the Holy Spirit never leaves Philippi. Underlying this thought process in verse 6 is a belief, a deep-seated belief in the goodness of God the kindness of God, the mercy of God. Do you know that first and foremost, when you think about those people in your life that you're struggling about, that you're worried over, that you feel fearful for their present and their future, that God first and foremost cares for them more? He cares about your family He loves your kids and your grandkids and brothers and sisters, moms and dads, distant relatives, co-workers, friend groups, neighbors. God loves these people. He's concerned for them too. After all, he sent his son into the world to die for them. What you think about God greatly impacts your overall mental health. One study, for example, has found that belief in a punitive God, so that's a God that's constantly over my shoulders waiting for me to mess up, a belief in that kind of God significantly is associated with an increase in social anxiety, paranoia, obsession, and compulsion. Conversely, belief in a a benevolent God, that's a good God who loves people even more than I love people. That's associated with reductions in those four symptoms. A.W. Tozer was so right. What comes into your mind 
when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So Paul's resting in God's sovereignty. You're also going to notice that he's praying for these people that he loved a lot. As you look through Paul's New Testament letters, they are like brimming over with prayers. He's praying for people and he's telling people that he loves them. I want you to take a look at his affectionate words again in verses 7 through 9 or through 8 towards this church. He says, it's right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ. Paul understood something. He understood that ministry is about people. It's about people. You know, when you look at his prayer, he seldom prays for things. He often prays for people. Um, You can get into a place where you feel lonely even though you're surrounded by people. You can also get into a place where you don't have access to people and yet you don't feel lonely. What's the difference? Well, it seems to me that Paul in praying for people, was constantly kind of shifting his perspective from his circumstances in Rome, and he was traveling the distance from Rome to Philippi, calling faces to mind, thinking about Lydia, thinking about the jailer and his family, Udiah, Syntyche, Clement. In fact, his ability to call names to mind is remarkable in the New Testament. If you go to Romans chapter 16, In that chapter, as Paul's writing this letter to a place where he's never been before, he calls to mind some 33 names. Names of people that on his missionary journeys he had interfaced with, whether in Turkey or Greece, and he had learned that they had relocated to Rome. He's constantly thinking about people and praying for them. Ministry is all about people. There was a a wise professor, he was building into a bunch of young seminary students, and he kept saying to these seminary students over and over and over again, gentlemen, make it your goal in your first year to win the love and trust of your people, and in the second year, do it all over again. Super wise. Here's what happens to young pastors. They get into ministry, and They're thinking like, I got a sermon to preach this Sunday, and I've got all these tasks to do, and and I've got to perform so that people are going to be happy with me. And it's like, no, 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 you've got all of that wrong. (laughs) Slow down and love people. Get to know them, care for them. Pastoring is shepherding. It's first and foremost about people. Here's the truth. It's not just true for pastors. It's also true for Christians in general. Just like you can't have ministry without people, you can't have the church without people. You lose the thread of it all when you think church is about like Bible study and music 
and all the kind of trappings and accoutrement that come along with church. Church, when it's described to us in Scripture, is a family, a body of Christ. It's the people that are gathering together. It's a complex web of relationships that I am called to love. When Paul thinks of his relationships to the church, he explains the center of it in verse 5. He says to them, you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ. That word partner you will often see translated in the New Testament with the word fellowship. We learn something a little more about fellowship in verses like this. People tend to believe that fellowship is based on all of us in this room believing the same things. And that's true. We need to believe the core convictions of the faith. But fellowship is even more than that. It's partnership. Relationships in local churches deepen when the church goes on mission together. If you ever struggle getting into church and wondering, why am I not really getting to know people and and going deep with people? It might be because you're not rolling up your sleeves alongside of them and serving with them. Mission deepens relationships in the local church. Paul prayed for these people because he had done mission with these people. He served God with these people. He watched the light of Christ shine forth through these people. So here you have it, resting in God's sovereign purposes, praying for people he loves, and having a clear vision for those people is the last one. Look at verses 9 through 11. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Paul's vision for this church had to do with understanding the center of spirituality and what spiritual growth is all about. It's so easy. You can look through the scriptures and see people just missing the center of spirituality, turning it into tasks and routines and If I just do these things, well, then I will make God happy and I will be a spiritual person. Uh, They begin to start caring more about looking spiritual than actually being spiritual. They put more energy into looking like they're a loving person than actual energy into loving people. And guess what? Scripture says over and over again, big mistake. That sort of Christianity, spirituality, religiosity will rob you of joy. Why? Because no one wants to feel fake. No one does. You know, there was a little boy that was attending Sunday school class, and he started kind of coming to the opinion that what he had to do in Sunday school class was perform, so he had to always say the right answers, and he knew what the right answers were. And so his Sunday school teacher asked the question, 
She says, what is brown furry, has a long tail, and stores up nuts for the winter? The little boy just mutters to himself, and he says, well, I guess the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. Isn't that deflating, dissatisfying? Isn't that just kind of wrong to reduce your spirituality to, I just know the right things to say at the right time? Paul didn't want Philippi to miss the center. He doesn't want you to miss the center. God wants you to live a vibrant spirituality. Listen to Paul describe it. May you be filled with the fruit of your salvation. I pray that your love may abound more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. God never wants your knowledge of the faith to ever outpace your love. That's the center. Now, you look at the love that he's describing here, and you're saying love for who? God? People? The answer is yes. Love God, love your neighbor. I want that to overflow. I don't want you to practice a, a religion where you feel superior to people, where you form this commune and isolate yourself from people. I want you to be different, but I want you to be different because you're truly loving people with your life. And guess what? That kind of different is attractive. Jesus was attractive. The only people that were repelled by him were the religious hypocrites. But anyone who actually got into the glow of Jesus's love and care were attracted to him. You know, Paul actually had to beat down people missing the center of spirituality in the book of Corinthians. This church was all high on themselves. We've got spiritual gifts. I speak tongues, I'm the person who prophesies, I'm somebody important. And Paul says, you got it wrong. You're missing the center. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. Do you see what it's all about? God is growing you. He's changing you. He's transforming you so that you can become the kind of person that actually loves people in tangible, specific ways. And sometimes we come to church, and we're going to get into this more, and we think it's all about me, and it's all about what I want, and it's all about what I need. And God says, no, 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 no. I need you to enter into this complex, this complex fray of relationships where there are some people that are easy to love and other people that are hard to love and actually love them. And the more you do that, 
the more you will become like my son, Jesus Christ. So here's my question. You are what you think. How do you need to respond to this message this morning? You know, David Murray says, we may not be able to change our culture, but we can change the way we think about it. We cannot change certain events in life, but we can change the way that we respond to them. What needs to change in your thought process so that you can experience the joy of Christ in your life? I want to just offer two threads of thought. The first is, you are what you think about God. What kind of messages have you been telling yourself lately about God? Is he the benevolent God of Scripture that we read about who sent his son into the world, who gives this common grace for people, who cares? Or is he some other kind of God? Maybe you need to incorporate in your daily practice rhythms where you're reminding yourself of various ways that God has been good in your life recently. Here's a second thought. You are what you think about people. When is the last time you found yourself spontaneously praying and thanking God for people in your life? You know, we just sat around the Thanksgiving table. I hope that as you were looking eyeball to eyeball with some of those people, that you were thinking grateful thoughts of them. That, let me ask you this. When's the last time you sat down and just fired off a letter to someone and said, I'm just so grateful that I know you, that you're a part of my life? Those two thoughts, if we could just start doing those things, thinking right thoughts about God, being grateful for people, I think that would bring a lot of joy into our world. Obviously, Paul shows us it in the book of Philippians. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are just so grateful for your word. Your word speaks to every area of our life, including, yes, even our mental health, even how we feel in this world. The Apostle Paul dramatically shows us this in this book of Philippians, that even though he's on lockdown, his mind is not locked down. That he is confident in your purposes that he's praying and loving people, that he understands the center of spirituality. And of course, Lord, as a church, if we could do these things too, how would that change the way that we relate to one another, the way that we worship you, and the way that we go and tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ? I believe that the world needs to see a happy church, a church that is shaped by a positive outlook that looks and believes that the God of the New Testament is the same God today working in this world right now and that he too has good purposes for us. Lord, if I could give this congregation one gift and one gift alone, it would be this positive, optimistic, happy faith, the faith that we used to see described and lived by this, these New Testament writers. We praise you in the name of Jesus. We are so grateful that you sent him for us. In your name we pray.